Today we start what is going to be a very brief three-week series, and that series is entitled Lies We Believe. Now there's a subtitle to it, and it's called Truths We Must Embrace. What we don't want to do is just simply sit on the lie, but I think we have to unpack the lie first in order for us to see how the truth is going to bear and come to light in, in our own lives. There are lies that all of us believe. Now, not all of us believe the exact same lie. There may be a lie that you have that may be particularly a struggle for you to overcome. It may not affect me. There may be one that affects me deeply. It may not affect you. But there are lies that we all believe. None of us are are exempt from believing lies. Now, here's the thing. We may even give uh, intellectual assent to say, you know what, that statement is wrong, that concept is wrong, that idea is wrong, but when it comes to us living in light of the truth as opposed to lie, we oftentimes are drawn more to the lie than we are to the truth. There are things that capture our minds and our hearts in such a way that it becomes difficult to break off from them, even though we know in the depths of our minds, even in our hearts, that, that this just simply isn't true. Here's a quick example. Try and tell a four-year-old that there is no monster in the closet when they are convinced a monster is in the closet. Now, we know that it's not there, but but trying to live in light of that, live as if it's not there, that four-year-old is going to be frightened. So what typically takes away the fear of the four-year-old? Is it turning on the lights and saying, see, There's nothing here. Or is it when a parent says, I'm going to get down in here with you. I'm going to stay with you for just a little while. And your safety is dependent upon me. There are lies that we all believe we have a difficult time overcoming, even though we may give intellectual assent. Then there are truths that we must embrace. Today, the lie that we're going to look at is just simply this. I am what I do. I am what it is that I do. My value and worth is determined by what I manufacture and produce. Now, this is true across the board. This could be true in the workplace. It could be true in home We tend to to, to assign value and worth based on what it is that we do, produce, make, generate, serve, etc. Let me give you just a couple of examples that we would see in uh, in life. In sports, we have this award. It's given out at uh, virtually every level. It starts at the youngest of ages, then it goes all the way up to the professional level. And then this award is given in a regular season. It's also given at the end of the season. It could be in the playoffs. It could be given for an individual team. It could be given for the whole league. But in sports, we call this trophy the most valuable player. He has or she has the most value of anybody in the league. Now, what I'm not implying here is that we, um, at every level, say uh, that person's only worth and dignity is, 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 is made up in, in what they can produce in terms of sports. I'm not saying it's that simple in there. And I'm not saying that each of us and all of us w- would say, 
Um, uh, the, the total dignity of a person is based on whether or not they can put a leather ball in an iron hoop more than somebody else or put a little white ball into a real small hole in the ground, most frustrating game on, on planet Earth, or whether they can take a round bat and hit a round ball, whatever the sport may be. I'm not saying that all of us say, say uh, yeah, no doubt, every bit of value is determined by what they produce. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that it's built into our language and our psyche. When we start saying this is the most valuable player, what are we actually meaning? Take it out of the realm of sports for just a moment. I was reading an article here recently because I'm a NASA freak, and I'm so excited over the fact that we've got more things going back up in space, and we've got uh, plans to go to Mars. And we all this, I just love all this stuff. I'm fascinated with it. Elon Musk. Elon Musk has a net worth of multiple billions of dollars, just a tad bit more than me. We say he has a net worth, and it's whatever the dollar sign is that comes after that. Now, again, would any of us say all of his worth is tied up into what it is he makes? No. But isn't there something innate in us that says, yeah, I do tend to assign value and worth of people based on what it is that they produce or do? Isn't our culture set up that way in many ways? Don't we tend to say that someone is going to get greater honor when they can produce more? We have first class tickets on an airplane. What does that actually mean? That they're first-class citizens? Well, one thing we know for sure, they have first-class money. I used to feel really important in my early 20s. I worked for two summers. It was the summer of 91 and the summer of 94 with Delta Airlines. I came in and was the vacation relief for the guys that worked in the summertime. So I was what, called, what is called a bin monkey. I would go inside the Benson plane. They would throw the bags to me. I would stack them up until you couldn't stack anymore, et cetera. I did this over and over again for two summers. So when I would go and fly around in my early 20s and go speak in other places, youth conferences, et cetera, every time I flew from Montgomery to whatever the town was, you know, it's Montgomery, small airport, and so everybody flies to Atlanta. If you fly Delta, you're going to go through Atlanta at some point. In fact, even here, I had to go to Atlanta to get to Miami. I didn't realize that until later on. Go from Montgomery to Atlanta. Guess what they did with me? Because they loved me because I worked there. Uh, this has worked so hard. Ben Monkey. They, I, I rode first class from Montgomery to Atlanta on every flight. For all 27 minutes, literally 27 minutes from chalk to chalk, I flew first class. Sometimes... He was able to upgrade my ticket for the connecting flight so that I could get on the very row right, in, right behind first class. And I could put my feet under the curtain into first class. <laughs> what do we mean by that? What, what is first class? Now, again, I'm not saying that all of us assign every bit of value, worth, and dignity into what it is someone produces. But isn't there something in our psyche that attends to assign value and worth to what it is we manufacture, what it is that we produce. Mom, do you ever assign value and worth of your personhood based on how your kids live? The choices that they make? Do you ever see yourself as successful or failure based on what it is that your kids do? 
Guys, you ever find value and worth in a conversation when somebody says, what do you do? You come up and hear you're talking with folks that all of them are making in excess of, of uh, a half a million dollars a year, and you come up, so what do you do? I build things. How big are these things that you build? How vast has your company become? Here's what I think. I don't think we care what it is that someone does, produces, as long as it's growing and expanding and taking over, as long as it is successful. We don't really care what it is that you do or serve. Or, but if you do something that just stays here, try being a pastor. Walk into a conference, a pastor's conference that you have. Just listen to the conversation. So what is the size of your church? How often do you speak outside? How many books have you written? How many times have you found yourself saying, I'm going to listen to the opinion of this author because I've heard his name before, but this guy over here, I'm not sure what I'll think. We tend to assign value and worth based on what I am, what I am do. Can I throw one more in there before we get to the truth that we must embrace? This is where we want to spend the bulk of our time. Many of us today are going through our minds already, and it's not so much that I define myself based on what I am doing or will do. We define ourselves based on what it is we have already done. And some of that is we're riding off of the fumes of the past, but some of that is we can't get away from a past we're so desperately trying to get away from. For years, I would walk into a meeting on a Friday night in Montgomery, Alabama, and I would say, hi, I'm David. I am an alcoholic. I am what I have done. Now, there's something helpful about gathering with a group of people, and you're confessing publicly, and you're saying, you know what? This thing is bigger than me. I don't have the power in and of myself to overcome it, so let's together figure out how to support. There's something very helpful about that, very good. What I'm saying, it's a very dangerous thing when we start saying, I am, based on what it is that we do, are doing, will do, in particular, based on what it is that we have done. Here recently, and this is what I find rather interesting, in the world of college sports, if you've been keeping up with this, it's actually true, I think, even of high school, um, but in the world of college sports, there's something called an NIL. It is a name, image, and likeness. And now college athletes can make money based on their name, image, and their likeness. They can use their name, image, and likeness for commercial or promotional purposes. They can actually get funding out of this. Who knows what this is going to do to the game? It certainly will change recruiting. It'll be interesting to see what happens here in the future. Uh, but I want you to know, uh, college sports is not the first ones to figure out that um, name, image, and likeness is everything. It's all the way back in the book of Genesis. <laughs> if you would, in honor of God's word, would you stand as we read literally just two verses of Genesis right towards the end of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You may be seated. Genesis 1 is the story of the creation of the earth. And so there's these days that are set apart by Moses. He says, this is what happens on day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And then on day 6 is when he decides to make man, mankind, male and female. He makes them. Now, there's evidently at some point, some period of time in which there is a moment where Adam is without even God says it's really not good that he's alone. Now, we don't know exactly how much time takes place. I'm not here to debate whether or not this is a literal 24-hour period of time or not. I don't care. And quite frankly, I'm not sure that the scriptures are written to even try to tell us that. Here's what I know. God created everything out of nothing. And so God goes to work. And at the end of each one of these days, he says, it's good. Now, I want you to notice two changes in the language when we get down to verse 26, because it's very important that we see this. I don't think Moses did this unintentionally. I think Moses had this in his mind because the Holy Spirit put it in his mind to get this down. Notice verse 3, let there be. Verse 6, let there be. Verse 9, let the waters be. Verse 11, let the earth. Verse 14, let there be. Verse 20, let the waters swarm and the birds fly. Verse 24 says, let the earth bring forth creatures. Notice all this, uh, uh, let it be, let it be language. Beatles had to pick that up from somewhere. I just thought of that. Sorry, bad joke. Verse 26, it changes though when it says, let us make. I'm not saying that God was not personally involved in the let it be. Clearly, he was involved in every bit of that. God speaks and things happen. Let there be light. Light happens out there. It is the breath of God that is bringing life to an entire universe. I'm not saying that God was disengaged from it. I'm saying look at the intensity that changes in verse 26 that goes from let it be to let us make. God is actively going to be involved in in a way that Moses is trying to get across to us is heightened from the way he was before. It's different. It's similar, but it's different. Why? Because God is about to go to work on his crown jewel of creation. It adds to the personal nature of the creation of the people. That's the first thing. First important change is that language between let us, uh, I'm sorry, let it be and to let us make. Notice now um, the, the repetition of after their kind. Verses 11 and 12, it says that the vegetation, plants, trees are going to be uh, uh, multiplying each according to its kind. Verse 21, sea creatures and birds according to its kind. Verses 24 and 25, livestock Creeping things, which, by the way, is the coolest description of anything in the Bible. It's creeping things that creep along the ground. Beasts of the earth according to their kind. It's according to their kind. Look at the verse, verse 26, where the language changes. It says, let us make in our image and after our likeness, after its kind, after its kind, after its kind, after our likeness. It's different. One theologian, I think, beautifully crafted it this way. Cattle is after cattle. Man is after God. Cattle is like cattle. Man is like God. Now let that sit for just a minute. Is there anyone in this room right now that is really comfortable saying, I am like God? 
In many ways, we're not. We don't have the omnis, okay? We're not omnipresent. We're not omniscient. We don't have all the omni stuff that God has. But in many ways, we are like him because this is exactly what he says. The lie that we tend to believe is, I am what I do. What is the truth we must embrace? I am who God says I am. And if God says I'm like him, and that's my primary identity, that's the jumping off point, then this is where I've got to start. And I know right now, some of you are saying, great try, but you have no idea how my mind has been operating for years and years and years. And just because you say this, preacher boy, it's not going to change my mind. I know that. I don't believe that I have any power whatsoever to change your way of thinking. What I'm here to do is to confront you with what the scriptures say. And I'm saying that God has put it upon you. You think, you dwell, you meditate, you pray, you beg God to change the way you think about you and about others. And over time, he will. I say with fear and trepidation and full understanding of the limits of the statement that we are like God. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. What is he saying? All of this other creation is good. It's all good. I thought it out. I planned it. I mapped it out. I took my time. It's, it's the exact way that I want it to be. This kind right over here is going to continue to be this kind right here. All of this is marvelous, but I'm telling you, I want to do something special with man and with woman. And I want to make them such that they are similar, but they are also different. They are complementary to one another. Now, one last thing just simply to point out, because I, I find this to be um, uh, fascinating. If we go on to chapter 2, it gives us a more detailed description of what God did on day 6. Okay, so you don't get as, as much detail in, um, about the other things. It goes into much more detail about uh, the way he creates man. And you know what he says? You know what Adam's, you know what Adam means? Dirt, dust. Adam is from the ground. God says, and then these things happen. And then, but then God looks at the earth that he's created and says, I'm gonna make man. And so I'm gonna put my hands into this, and I'm going to fold and mold and fashion and create exactly like I want, and then I'm going to take him. And I'm going to breathe my life into him. Now, how many times have you found yourself over the years, parent, grandparent, whoever, you get down on your knees and you pick up that child that is just looking and legs and arms kick in, their eyes are up, there's not a whole lot they can do. And all you do is you bring that child in and oh, the joy and the delight. And what do you do sometimes? You start singing, don't you? You can't help it. Because there's something about this little image bear right here that sort of looks like you even already mysteriously. It's a, a reflection of you and somehow, and you can't help but rejoice with this child. You can't rejoice over it with singing. Why? Is it because that child has done something for you? Not yet. What have they done up to this point? They've pooped. They've made a mess of everything. They have cried. They've whined. This child is magnificent because this is 
your child. This is the image that God gives us of man and woman. I know it's tempting for you to think who you are is what you do or don't do, produce or don't produce. It's what you do on the right side of the equation, what you don't do on the wrong side of the equation. I I know it's normal and natural for us to think this is who I am, but that just simply is not what God says. You are who God says you are. And who are you first and foremost? A person bearing his image. Made in his image and likeness. And what's the price tag that we put on somebody that's been made in the image of of God? It's priceless. I want to give you three things uh, here quickly. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And there's many things that we could say, but it means at least three things to be made in the image of God. Number one, we have a personality. Now, what I don't mean by this is a Myers-Briggs or a disc profile or orange and blue or otters and lions and beavers and all that. I don't mean any of that. All that's good and right and fine. It's fun to look at those things and to discover, you know, what am I? Am I a four? Am I an eight? Am I whatever? All that's great. But that's not really what I'm referring to. It's more than that. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. We mean. When we say person, this is, we have a personality. Um, think of it this way. Everything that makes us distinguish between animals and, and, and humans. It's our ability to reason. We create. We think. We mull over. We're rational beings. We're capable of governing, discerning, critically thinking, etc. All these things. All this makes us a person. There are many activities that animals can take place in that humans also take place in. We're not human because we eat. We need to eat, but that doesn't make us uniquely human. What makes us human is, is being a person. I actually like my dog. I really do. I did not think I was going to like my dog in the beginning. I, I thought it was going to be, I actually like her. She's a great dog. I can take her out at night, late at night, oftentimes uh, when we get out, and it's just the two of us. It's this bonding time uh, that we have. And I don't even have to put a leash on this dog. We can walk around the neighborhood, and she does what all dogs do. She sniffs everything under, at that point, it'd be the moon rather than the sun. She sniffs everything. But here's all I got to do to get my dog back. I will snap my fingers, and my dog will come walking back over to me. Why? Clearly because I'm the most magnificent person that's ever lived. No, it's because we had a phenomenal trainer who trained her how to do this. I like my dog. Guess what? I, I, I would much rather take a walk with Judith than I would with my dog. A dog's not a person. Judith challenges me. She, we, we think, we, we mull over, we, we work through some problems. We, we talk about 80s music. There's, there's all kinds of things that we do. On a, I would rather walk with Judith than I would with my dog. And I don't snap my fingers when Judith goes off and sniffs the bushes. We have a personality. We're we're human. I think you know what I mean by that. And we have been called by God to function in life as persons mimicking the way that God functions. Number two, we have morality. We have personality. We also have morality. All people have a sense of right and wrong. Hear me on this now. Even my atheist friends 
have a sense of right and wrong. There is something they call right and there's something they call wrong. The system that they use is different than the system that I use. There's no transcendent system outside. There's nothing that's outside of themselves in order to come up. It's whatever they believe is the best thing for people. We have a system that exists outside of us. It is God. God is the system. He has told us what morality is. He's given us that through his word. It can be best summarized in the Ten Commandments. We are moral creatures. We know when we have done something right as it pertains to the world, but in particular towards humans, towards persons. And we know when we've done something that is wrong. Don't we tend to do this, again, humans, all throughout human history, don't we tend to do this when we have an opportunity to do something that's wrong, what's one of the first things we do? We know. We know. We know when we have been caught in doing something that is wrong. What do we do when we get caught in doing something that's wrong? We try to get out of that. How do we do that? Most often it's through some type of deception. It could be a, a colossal story. I know, mom and dad, that this light was in the ceiling before when you left the house. And I know that it sure appears as though it has fallen and broken into pieces right now. But here's what you got to hear. Um, we had an earthquake. Son, we live in Montgomery, Alabama. I know that. But it was a local earthquake. In fact, it may have been just our house, Dad. That's exactly what happened. You know, that we tried to lie to, because we know there's right and we know there is wrong. We have a personality and we have morality. Because Christians have been given, um, uh, we have been called by God to live out the morality of God and to give every person human dignity. We have a personality, we have morality, finally we have spirituality. All people have a spiritual component to them that is capable of relating to God. Here's what the scriptures tell us about the spiritual side of who we are. The spiritual side includes uh, it, uh, the mind, the will, the emotions are affected by it, but this is the, the spiritual component in which God relates to us um, we are either spiritually alive or we are spiritually dead. There is no in-between. Like someone is either pregnant or they're not. There's no semi-pregnant. You're, you're either rightly related to God or you're not rightly related to God. Well, what about these religions that have some really good things? That's great. They can have some really great morality. Morality is a part of human nature. But spiritual people in the scriptures are those who are spiritually alive. Natural men are those who are spiritually dead. Everyone outside of Christ is spiritually dead. As Christians, we are called to live spiritually in a way that is rightly relating to God, meaning that we carry on an actual relationship with him. Please, please hear me. If you tune out of everything else this morning and, and you want to go to sleep after this, that's fine. Please hear what I'm about to tell you. Do you know what is most important to God? It is relationship. Behavior is important. It is clearly important in the scriptures. Why? Because behavior indicates who owns my heart. We do what we want to do most. 
And when God has control of my heart in any given moment, I will want to do what God wants. I will want to have the morality of God. I will want to treat people with the same kind of dignity that God treats them. Please hear this though. Behavior is not primarily what God is after. What he's after is your heart. God was not bored in heaven when he created us. He and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were not sitting around going, man, it's like another eon that's passed you know, over here. So it's been another trillion years that have happened, and uh, we don't really have anybody um, here. You, what do you guys think we ought to do? I don't know. What if, we, what if we made some people? Maybe that would be cool. They weren't doing that. God decided that he was going to give his glory. More of it would be manifest. More people would experience deep-seated joy, satisfaction. So he creates the whole universe and specifically reaches milk makes man for the purpose of relating to them. Please hear it. It's not because God needed it. It's because God wanted it. God would not have been incomplete without us. He just wanted to make us. And he wants to relate to us. Behavior is important. But relationship is essential, and that's why God said, yeah, you'll never get it right. Adam and Eve, good try, um, but you're not going to get it right. After that, everybody else is is absolutely going to fail. And God says, I'm not going to let the behavior come between us, and so I'm going to send my son who's going to do everything right. He's going to do everything on their behalf so that he can bring them to me. We have personality, we have morality, we have spirituality. This is where we close. Since all people are made in the image of God, then all human life must be given infinite value. Please hear that again. Since all people, all people, religious, irreligious, Since all people are made in the image and likeness of God, all people must be given infinite value. God's people must embrace this truth. We are called to fight for life at every stage of life whether it is someone at the very end of their life, such as my grandmother years ago, 95 years old, in dementia, incapable of being the woman that we knew her to be for years and years and years, and even sometimes being foul. She has infinite value and worth as a person because she's made in the image of God, and therefore it is incumbent upon all of us, her family, to treat her as if she is a creature with infinite value and worth. For the child who has yet to be born has infinite value and worth. And it is incumbent upon every believer to treat that child as someone who has infinite value and worth. At every stage in between the womb and the tomb, we are called by God to treat everyone with the dignity that he has created them. Whether or not they acknowledge God, whether or not they worship God, 
whether or not they want to live the same kind of morals that we have, whether they are given a finger to God or not, we are called to treat these people with the infinite value and worth to, get, to, to bring and to give dignity. I want to close because I brought it up earlier and I just don't think that we can leave it without at least drawing your mind's attention to a few. I know that there are some of you today who are here who are going to be incapable of getting past your failures. Maybe you have in your mind failed as a spouse. Maybe you have failed as a parent. Maybe you have failed as an employer or employee. Maybe you have failed as a Christian. Maybe you look at your life and you say, I cannot believe that I have much worth and dignity at all because in every phase of life, I am an absolute failure. I just want you to hear what it is that God has said. These are not my words. Again, I, I want you to mull on these things. I'm not expecting to walk out going, I'm fixed. For those who believe, I am what I have done. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Psalm 86, 5 says, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And finally, Psalm 103, 12 says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so does the Lord show compassion to those who fear him. Here's what this is all saying. God stands ready and willing to forgive you from all of your sin. But according to the scriptures, you've got to reach out to the Lord. You've got to take a risk. Confess with your mouth. Acknowledge, God, I am a failure. That is correct. I fail at everything that I do. I trust Jesus. Jesus is the one who has done everything on your behalf. And by placing your hope and faith in what Jesus can do, Jesus is the one that can actually make you right before God, not you making yourself right before God. So by embracing the person of Christ, here's what the scriptures tell us, that God takes our sin, all of our actions, past, present, and even those that we will commit in the future, and he separates them from us as far as the east is from the west on opposite ends, not right here, the dividing line. I'm talking about separated out in eternity. That's how far he separates our sin from us. And then what does he do? He gets on them with the business of getting to know you. If you have never taken the time to get to know Jesus, I want to challenge you to do so. And if you want to know how to do that, I promise you I'll make myself personally available to you. I'd love to meet with you and talk about what it looks like to have a relationship, as weird as that sounds, with a holy God. I am what I do is the lie that we believe. The truth that we must embrace is I am who God says that I am.